Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Crystal Cup by Bram Stoker. First published in a magazine called London Society, September 1872. I thought it would be very hard to find a magazine um, called London Society because everybody would have been talking about London Society in 1872. Uh, but actually it was really easy because there was a website uh, that's dedicated to Stoker and they had a, a scan of this story and we're reading it from the original. Really interesting about this story is that it was published in 1872 and next published in 1973. So 101 years later, as far as I can tell, it was never republished during his lifetime. And that is insane given how interesting and actually good this story is, I think. Aha. Uh-huh. Did you find it to be uh, shockingly interesting? Uh, I guess it depends on what one means by interesting. I, having read it now a number of times, uh, candidly, personally, mm-hmm. personally, Jesse, um, I don't know that I care a lot about the story. I mean, I care. It's it's a good story. It's 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 a good story. I, I shouldn't give it short shrift. But Dracula is a great novel, and True. for me, one of the things that makes this story well worth the reading, in fact, rereading, is the subtle ways in which it presages so much about Dracula, and that's especially significant to me in that Dracula was published in 1897. Um, and this was published, as you said, in 1872. This is when Stoker was 24 years old, mm-hmm. uh, presumably uh, vibrant and healthy and the whole world before him. And yet, 25 years later, he writes this great novel about battling death and um, so much of which is already implicit in this story. So, yeah, I, I like the story. I like the story, but um, it's so oddly written that I don't know that I would have recommended it to just a general range of modern readers. But anybody who knows Dracula, then I'd say, ah, and wait till you see how this thing works. Mm. Well, at least that's how it struck me. Does that? Uh, but but you, I think, are saying you just you really like it all for itself, which yeah. would be great. I didn't. I didn't at first. I I had to figure out what the hell was going on. Um, this is very <laughs> different. I didn't. It's not what I expected. You know, I I've read just a few things by Stoker. I read Dracula's Guest. I've read Dracula. And maybe like two of his other short stories that are much later. This, uh, I what I failed to mention earlier is that this is actually not only, um, you know, an abandoned and forgotten story, um, actually credited to Abraham Stoker, not Bram Stoker. Perhaps one of the reasons it was forgotten is because it, it's got his full name there. Um, but also, it's his first story, first published story. So this is the thing that 
that got him going. He submitted another story uh, to uh, magazines at the time as well, but it was rejected and has subsequently been lost. Um, so it's possible there's even more um, early efforts. But what I what I find so striking about this after after I figure out what the heck, heck is going on, it's a very <laughs> different pacing and there's no character names except for one and that one's sort of a metaphor and uh, set in a no world that I've been to. Um, once you get into the rhythm of it and the feeling of it and what the plot is and all that stuff, I found it immensely interesting, not just sentence by sentence, but as um, I, I can, I feel like I can see exactly what he's done now in a way. It's almost like crystal clear to me <laughs> as to exactly clear. what he's done here. And it's, it's so much about the art of making art. Um, and it's so obvious the influence, even though there's, I have no evidence outside the, the story itself that he was wholly and deeply inspired by Edgar Allan Poe to write this. I agree with that completely. And I, I find it so, like, I, I think, there, is there this is really me? Inside the story. I mean, the, the use of the word nevermore sure. is kind of a, kind of a, a giveaway. Tip. Yeah, it's a tip. But I was thinking, well, is this even possible? It's 1872. Poe's been dead for 20 years. Um is this is this possible that he he's read it and and then I thought no it must be because um, uh, Conan Doyle was inspired by Poe right with his Sherlock Holmes um, the C. Augusta Pan and I I didn't know about how well publicized Poe would have been in the 1870s but uh, based on this alone I'm confident that at least one person in the UK got a copy of Poe's collected works and poems and and decided that they were inspiration for a writing career, or at least well, something like it. Baudelaire's translation of Poe in mid-century, mid-19th century, mm -hmm. um, is in fact quite famous. Yes, uh, but so that's Poe, France, right? So well, I understand that, but <laughs> I, I, I guess what I'm saying is there's no reason at all to suppose that Poe was confined to the west side of the pond. Uh, it's it must be the case that a lot of other people were reading it too, but I wonder if anybody who read this was saying, "Oh, he's doing Poe here, and he's doing something." It doesn't it doesn't have a complete feel of Poe, but um, before we go down the the more you know what what he's doing allusions to, maybe you would venture a plot summary. Well, that's that's I'm I'm diffident, but I will. I'm okay. diffident because precisely the difficulty in decoding what is going on here is part of the experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and for those who may be kind enough to listen to us, but have not yet or may never read this. Um, well, if, if they haven't yet read it, but intend to read the crystal cup, um, read it. God, it's good. You know, uh, yeah, read it, but I guess a little bit of a spoiler coming here. So the story is told in three parts. Part one is called the dream birth. And there is someone speaking who says I. Um, and this I, if we can believe him, we come to realize that this I is uh, someone who is locked up in a palace that is also for him a dungeon. Um, he's a 
in a tower someplace and can look out through his window at at the ocean, but it doesn't look like there's any land under him. So it looks like it's it's right on a crag, um, and and he sees the the moonlight uh, reflecting off um, the the wave tops. Uh, he's in the process of making a. Um, a crystal cup, a crystal vase. The words are used interchangeably in the story. I'm not sure why two different words are used. Um, he's preparing for a feast of beauty in which there is, as far as he understands, a competition among all of the different artists who are creating whatever they create, um, paintings, a dance, song, um, and there's going to be this huge competition, and the winner will receive his or her freedom. And, and we realize that as our fellow is working on this cup, he's also trying to embody in it the love he has for someone named Aurora. Uh, the second part is called the Feast of Beauty. And here we have an eye narrator, but the eye narrator we come to realize is the the ruler of the Feast of Beauty. That is, he is a functionary for the king who has arranged all of this and has imprisoned and compelled to work all of these different artists. Apparently, a Feast of Beauty is something that has happened traditionally in this um uh, this kingdom of a world you and I are unfamiliar with. Um, and the last time it happened, it happened five years ago. And we learned that it's going to happen this time and it will be the last time. Uh, the issue arises, the master of the feast asks the king, what should we do if the the laurels, the, the winner um, who is chosen, the laurels are awarded to an artist who can't attend. Well, why can't he attend? The, the king asks. I mean, they're all, after all, imprisoned. Um, and the ruler says, well, what if he's dead? And the king says, dead or alive, the tradition is that the winner has to be present. So in the third section, which is uh, told by a moonbeam, it's called the story of the moonbeam, the moonbeam manages to approach this castle now from the outside. Uh, and as it gets close enough to be able to see the castle, regardless of the ups and downs of the cresting waves, it comes in, it sees uh, what's going on, and it describes a scene. We get to see the scene that it describes. The scene includes uh, two long tables uh, where we've got two sets of artists at one table, we've got all of these folks, and one of them is bound in a chair, um, straps holding him in, and the laurels on his head. And the other, um, there are a number of people, one of whom is a woman named Aurora. And it turns out that uh, our guy, the crystal cup maker, won. But he died at the moment of completing this supernal um, cup. But he's there anyway, and his fame goes on. So he doesn't get the girl, but he wins. And that doesn't matter to him, but it matters to us. It's sort of a, mm -hmm. in that sense, you know, art is long, life is short kind of story. 
he goes on forever because he is the keeper of the cup. Although, in another way, he doesn't go on forever because we don't know his name. We don't know a thing about him. All we know is that the cup that he made in trying to embody the relationship that he had with Aurora goes on, and we can see that through the eye of a moonbeam, but in fact, the moon is fleeting. It will move on, and in half a lunation, it will go dark. So the value of the persistence of art itself is called into question here. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, very appropriate for this being a lost story. 101 uh, years hidden hidden away, nobody knowing about it. I would think that he would have profited by people reading it, but maybe he didn't think it was... He had short story collections. I don't know why he, he didn't publish this. I, I see nothing to be embarrassed about in here as a first work. In fact, I find it to be... Uh, much more beautiful than you know dracula dracula is a fascinating very powerful story i I see in this a a very it's it's it the title is amazing given the the subject and and what he does with it and the vase versus cup question um is very interesting because there's there's a story a backstory to this that's mentioned um, pretty early. Um, I'll just read that section. It's on page 229, if you don't mind. Um, it goes like this. I sat till my passion had worn itself out, and then I slept and dreamed of thee, Aurora, of thee and freedom. In my ears I heard again the old song we used to sing together, when, when as children we wandered on the beach, when as lovers we saw the sun sink into the ocean, and I would see its glory doubled as it shone in thine eyes, and was mellowed against thy cheek. And when as my bride you clung to me, as my arms went round you, on that desert tongue of land whence rushed the, that band of sea robbers that tore me away, oh, how my heart courses, uh, curses those men, not men but fiends, but one solitary gleam of joy remains from that dread encounter, that my struggle stayed those hellhounds, and that ere I was stricken down, this right hand sent one of them to his home. My spirit rises as I think of that blow that saved thee from a life worse than death. He's wrong about what happened, right? Indeed. He doesn't know that he didn't save her from enslavement. He, but he did save her, apparently. I'm guessing when he said a life worse than death, uh, I think he was believing that she would be taken and serially raped. Mm, that's possible. Where, whereas, in fact, we t- find that she has been um, imprisoned just as he has um, for her artistry as a singer rather mm-hmm. than her artistry as a sculptor yeah and the the interesting thing is that the the cup as a choice of vessel uh for the art here as opposed to uh, the the first one that i thought of of pose that i was inspired like oh this is obviously what he's inspired by is the oval portrait which is a painting um that 
has kind of the same effect as what creating this vessel has. Um, by creating this vessel, he says multiple times um, that he knows... Oh, yeah, I'll just read it. It's on page 280. 280 uh, 230, sorry. Day by day I grow weaker and weaker. Still I work on with... On with all my soul. At night the thought comes to me whilst I think of thee that I will never see thee more. He's talking to Aurora. That I breathe out my life into the crystal cup and that it will last there when I am gone. My life is slowly ebbing away and I feel that with my last touch my life will pass out forever into the cup. Till that touch is given I must not die. I will not die. So as soon as he completes his uh, perfect object of art, he will be destroyed. And he actually transfers himself into that cup. And then when we get to part three, with the light, a.k.a. Aurora, coming in and communing with that cup, and then with the voice, and remember it was their voices together at the beginning of the story, they're singing in their childhood, together that old song we used to sing together um then the cup is destroyed it's so symmetrical and and i uh, just thinking about how well put together this is it's amazing there's it starts with a scene where he's looking out at the waters he looks out at the waters he sees the light the moonlight on the waves and the symmetry of the waves and then we get this whole story, the backstory. We go to the vizier. That's what I'm calling him in my mind, the administrator, the the minister to the king, um, uh -huh. who who you know tells us of the beauty of the cup and a little bit more about this this strange kingdom by the sea. And then we get the final uh, chapter or section, the story of a moonbeam, in which we start on the sea and we head towards the, that. Uh, castle dungeon, right? And it, we pass through into the room where we see a dead figure, which we assume and know is the artist himself, strapped to the chair, not because he's he's unwilling, but strapped to the chair because that's the only way to keep him from collapsing, because he's dead. And then we find out that that aurora, that moonbeam, has a uh, parallel personage in the company, a living being named Aurora, we find out, surprise, and they commune together in a, a very interesting way, passes into the light, and then the sound of the voice, of her voice, passes into the, and is echoed by the, the crystal cup. Everybody raises their goblets, which we're told are filled with wine, all the artists, right? So we can see through them, which means they're all crystal cups. And then, at the final moments, the cup resonates with the singing and is shattered into, what, a million atoms? It's a beautiful, beautiful symmetry that he's, he's, he's built. I agree. I, I like it. I do like it. I, I, I may have missed something here, Jesse. I would like to make one small correction. Mm -hmm. I think it's a correction. Um, I don't believe we're told that the moonbeam who narrates the the third section is named Aurora. No, 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 no. She she's it doesn't say that, but uh, Aurora is light. No, Aurora is dawn, and I think it's important because the moonbeam 
talks about how the glory of the cup and the glory of what the, the moonbeam is seeing finally makes her proud of being the offspring of the sun. Yeah, she's, I mean, so, she's the daughter of the moon, right? And the sun, uh, the sun hits the the, the, the moon. Sun, the moon exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. The, the real source of the light is the sun, mm-hmm. and she comes off the moon. But this makes her proud because of the way she can illuminate things. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that the question here, that's raised here, is often, is something of value in itself, or is it in value of value because of the source that it makes available to us? In that sense, it goes back to Plato's notion of. Um, inspiration coming down through one linked magnet or lodestone after another, you know, the muse is up there, but the, the poet is able to be inspired by it. Um, I do see Poe here, and I love that you're saying in the kingdom by the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed, Annabelle Lee is another, um, from which that line comes. Uh, Annabelle Lee is another Poe reference that I think resonates strongly here, uh, as does the oval portrait. When the painter finishes uh, the portrait at that moment, and when he says, "It is very, it is this is life itself," he turns and his wife, his bride, um, has died. I mean, he takes the life out of her and puts it into the into the portrait. But I would say that in some sense, what Stoker has done here is given us a reflection of Poe mm-hmm. in the same way that the moonbeam is a reflection of the sun. It is not the sun itself because, in fact, the Aurora is alive, not dead. I mean, Aurora, the character, is alive, not dead. It's the artist who dies when he completes his art that is sculpting the the silver, the, the crystal cup. And in The Raven... When, when we hear "Nevermore, Nevermore," the Raven is saying that you know the the the, the poor fellow who is uh, nodding uh, weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, um, he'll never see Lenore again. Nevermore, Nevermore. In Annabel Lee, there is a dead body that the poet goes to to lie down in the sepulcher there by the sea by the sounding sea, on a beach, just the way we have a description here. But here in Stoker, it's different. When it says nevermore, this is the very end of section one, I leave revenge to a juster and a mightier than I, the carver, the sculptor is saying, thee, O Aurora, I will await in the land of flowers where thou and I will wander, nevermore to part, Mm -hmm. nevermore, ah, nevermore, Farewell, Aurora, Aurora, Aurora. So where nevermore means ultimate separation in Poe, through death, nevermore means ultimate conjugation Mm -hmm. in Stoker. And that, I think, works throughout this story. In death, the the poet is, is immortalized. In death, the sculptor is immortalized. In death we see the carver of the crystal cup given the laurels. And as I say, if we take this sort of reflection of Poe, we can see something that maybe we don't often see in consideration of Dracula. You know, the, the very opening here with the lapping of the waves on the, be- on, the uh, on the outside of the castle 
and so on. Um, the light, the, the speaker is imagining the light going up the wall and climbing down the wall of the castle. Um, this is a scene straight out of Dracula, where Dracula climbs down the outside, you know, upside down, climbs down the outside of the castle. We have, in fact, the, the bride of Dracula, uh, who is ghostly and coming to him. We have so many aspects of Dracula. In Dracula, the the aristocrat is the one who kills, as it were, ordinary humans. But in fact, what he does is confer immortality on them. Um, I mean, some of them just die, but some of them he turns into, you know, immortal vampires. They live forever having died out of life. And putting that in in the in the light, <laughs> forgive me, of this story, it's possible to suggest that Stoker sees what the aristocrat does. The king, after all, is the one who conjures up this feast of beauty. What the aristocrat does is confer a kind of life that is an immortality. It is, in fact, the freedom that comes from death not simply death. And as I think about that, as I think of death being thought of as an artistic freedom in this story, one can look at Dracula in 1897 as a little bit more problematic. It's not just that the anti-Dracula forces win, uh, because in fact, what's left behind is uh, the brides of Dracula, the wives of Dracula, who are still still exist in Europe, and the book, right? The, the artistry has persisted. So then I look forward, say, 80 years to the mid-1970s, and suddenly we wind up with a spate of books. Uh, for example, Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire, mm -hmm. a spate of books that pick up on just this possibility that maybe you want to be a vampire. <laughs> maybe it's worth having immortality, even if it means you have to die out of human life. And I was rather stunned to realize that, at least in a subliminal way, Stoker himself, 25 years before he writes Dracula, by taking Poe and looking at Poe from the other side, the reflection of Poe, um, Stoker is already presaging what a century later or three quarters of a century later, people will see as implicit in his fundamental tropes all along. I, I find that the, the connection of this in the literary history and the meaning of death and art and their relationship to each other is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It, it's, it is striking that his first story is a story about the creation of art and its immortality and, and the beauty of that creation. And, and then uh, uh, we finally find out at the end that the, that the crystal cup that he's created has been destroyed. Um, he's actually gotten a certain kind of revenge. The um, uh, We've mentioned the oval portrait, we mentioned the raven, 
there's two others that I think we could mention as well. Um, it's a very brief line, but you actually quoted it. I'll just read it again. There, O Aurora, I will await you in the land of flowers. We can interpret this as, you know, the afterlife, right? I will await in the land of flowers where thou and I will wander never more to part never more. Um, there is a story very uh, dreamlike and set in a mythical non-existent land by Poe called Eleonora, one of his many stories that has a female in the title. Um, and it's a land of flowers. It's very strikingly a dreamlike land where, um, and it has a happy ending, which is unusual for Poe. Um, very interesting. This sort of has a happy ending. The other one that is, uh, struck me quite strongly after I started looking for Poe influences is that the, the, the plot actually is kind of like Hop Frog. If you remember Hop Frog, it's a story of a dwarf who has been taken from his homeland and becomes a uh, cruel butt of jokes for a um, a king in a distant land, a non-existent land that, you know, is a dreamlike fantasy world. And he takes his revenge in a court scene not unlike that of the Feast of Beauty um, and kills the king um, in a rather horrifying way. In that, it's all rather macabre and uh, revengey. Here, the revenge is... I'm not sure it's on purpose, but it's certainly um, kind of, it is a kind of revenge. The king himself also dies at the end of the story. And he isn't the only dead person at that Feast of Beauty. So there's a kind of um, revenge from the grave, which we would normally associate with Poe, but I, I don't think that he usually has revenge from the grave as much as he just has revenge. That's sort of his thing. And and fitting that all together, it seems very clear to me that he he was deeply inspired by Poe. Um and that this whole world that he's created just for this story could fit into another Poe Poe anthology. Uh, I'm I'm struck, and I wonder if there are many others like this. People who are just so deeply inspired by Poe, they wrote a story that could be set in Poe's universe. <laughs> I think I think that's true. Certainly, I've had students who did it. Um, I, I want to ask because I don't know enough about uh, Stoker's life, but you often know these things, Jesse. Uh, Stoker was best known in his own. I mean, to us, he's the author of Dracula. Um, and to people who study that sort of thing, maybe Dracula's guest, and to really, really study like you, and, and now I, I guess, uh, a few other things like the Crystal Cup. But in his own life, he was most known as the personal assistant to a wildly uh, famous actor and a theater manager. Um, what I don't know is, was he already involved Mm. in making someone else look good as an artist at the age of 24 when he published this story? Uh, I don't remember exactly the timeline, but I believe he was already in the theater business um, at the time this story is written. Obviously, he wasn't um, uh, 
one one person I read who who did an analysis uh, analysis of this story and was very um, surprised by it, as was I when I started reading it, um, suggested that one of the reasons that he didn't have a bigger career as a literary person, he has a few novels. There's I think three major novels. There's uh, Dracula, there's The Lair of the White Worm, which is not well regarded today, and there's uh, one uh, I want to say The Jewel of the Seven Stars, but I, I think that's not the, that, that might be the movie title um, uh, which has a mummy in it. Um, he didn't make his bones as, as a living. He didn't make his living um, being a writer. That was sort of the thing he did when he wasn't working in the theater and the idea i think is that perhaps he got a lot of his creative juices going in the theater and that was enough so i guess what i'm wondering about um is whether or not this sense of being in the shadow of someone else that actually has the creative light um and he struggling against that by creating in his own way something out of the shadows, um, which he does here and does in Dracula, whether or not that already comes out of his life experience. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. And we could do more. And that would at best make us long distance psychologists. But it's hard not to want to do that when you have work like this that sort of screams out to you mm-hmm. that there's always more to say and remember you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep